Chapter 2, verse 69 to 72. Description of an enlightened soul. So, a quick recap. Verse 60 states The five senses drag the mind to the world. Therefore, verse 61 says, Therefore, control the senses and concentrate on the self. Verse 62 and 63, if you don't control the senses, then it shows the ladder of fall. What's gonna to happen to you? You'll be lost in the world. Verse 64, explains the art of self-control, how to practice self-control of the senses. And if you practice it, the result is you'll have peace of mind. Verse 65, when you have peace of mind, it makes the intellect more clearer, more sharper, more powerful, which allows you to then go into the world, achieve everything you want to achieve. Then verse 67, the mind drags away the intellect and we perish. Verse 68, therefore control the senses. Krishna concludes to Arjuna the negative effect of the senses, stating that ultimately, if you want to reach the state of perfection, moksha, self-realization, then you have to restrain the senses completely from sense objects. It's the only way. Because it is the senses that keep you in the world. The senses are attracted to the world, like I said, a magnet and a piece of iron. That's how the world and world attracts the senses. Any questions before we start verse 69? That's a quick recap. Okay, so verse 69. Yanisa sarvabhutanam Dasyam jagati samyami, yasyam jagrati bhutani, sanisa pasyato munihi, yanisa sarva bhutanam, dasyam jagati samyami, yasyam jagrati bhutani, that which is night to all beings, therein the self-controlled one keeps awake. That in which beings are awake is night to the sage who sees. It's like a cryptic, cryptic verse. 
that which is night to all beings, therein the self-controlled one keeps awake. That in which beings are awake is night to the sage who sees. So in the Gita, they have these kind of statements. They don't make logical sense. I mean, if you just read that, what would you make of it? Self-controlled person is night. Is For him, it's night when it's day for the normal unself-controlled people. Does it make sense? So these uh, statements are all over in the Gita. It's, uh, it's sort of put in there to, so that we would pay attention to it. Hey, what does this mean? This doesn't make sense. Anyone know what it means? Anyone have an idea? What does it mean? What is night to a self-realized person is day to a normal person and vice versa. Any ideas? Think about it. Dharmesh. That person understands the world. He, he mm -hmm. knows what's real and what's not real. Okay, yeah. Good 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 attempt. Anybody else? Yeah, Arunabin. Is it, is it that when you have control of your senses for a person who has full control of his senses, it doesn't matter to them whether it's night or day, because for them it's all the same? Mm, yes and no. Um, we're talking about a person who's reached that state, yeah. self-realized state. Yeah. Okay. So, did you want to? Is it that um, when the self-realized person acts in the world, so it's in the waking phase that we are attracted to a world and our senses are awake, wanting to contact. But the self-realized person would be, intellect would be awake to make sure that that doesn't occur. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. You're on the right ballpark. So what it means is that the experiences of a self-realized person and the experiences of a normal worldly person are different as night and day. That's how different it is. When a person, self-realized person acts in the world and when a normal person acts in the world, the differences of the experience is like night and day. They both experience the world differently. How? We're going to find out. And the, an enlightened person lives a life with full knowledge, infinite knowledge, as some of you have mentioned. They're in complete bliss, happiness. Self-realized person knows there is whatever there is to be known about life. They know everything. They have full knowledge, wisdom. They know the goal of life. They detach from the world, nothing affects them. And while they're acting, their intellect, their attention is constantly on the self. I am the self, I am not this body, mind, intellect. I am the self, I'm not this body, mind, intellect. That's how they act. And how does a normal worldly person act who doesn't have this understanding? 
who is ignorant of the self. He lives a life of attachment and involvement in the world. Only living to fulfill his worldly desires through the experiences of his body, mind, intellect. That's all he's doing. Constantly, throughout his life, he's constantly agitated. Sorrow, no peace. Which is the opposite of a self-realized person. They do not use the life for the intended purpose. Therefore, they're wasting their lives. So what it's saying is that this way of life is like darkness to a realized person. He doesn't understand why we, we all behaving in this way. He's thinking these guys are idiots. What are they doing? So that both lives are opposite to each other like night and day. He doesn't understand why we're behaving in this way. We don't understand why he's behaving in that way. In that way. How come nothing bothers him? He's always smiling. What's wrong with this person? Self-realized person, his life has an imperishable nature, changeless, infinite. He's focused only on one thing. A normal person's life is finite, changing all the time. His mood's changing, perishable nature. Limited personality. So these sort of um, verses is so that we would pay extra attention to this verse. It's an important verse. So pay attention. See the difference between two people, self-realized person and a normal person. Any questions? We can't understand him, he can't understand us. Ravi. Krishna makes a staggering statement. What is night to all brings beings is day to a self-realized sage. What is day to them is night to him. Such seemingly inconsistent statements appear in other parts of the Gita as well. They help to heighten the listener's attention, particularly to emphasize an important subject. The experiences of the ignorant men of the world and a man of enlightenment are as widely divergent as night and day. A self-realized sage ever awakened to the Supreme Consciousness, lives a life of infinite knowledge and bliss. The beings of the world know nothing of such a life. Instead, they are attached and involved in the world. They are caught up in the web of perception and actions of the body, feelings and emotions of the mind and thoughts and ideas of the intellect. This involvement fetters their lives with limitations and restrictions. They suffer from mental agitation and sorrow. Such a life is dark to the liberated soul enjoying supreme peace and bliss. He does not know the bondage of worldly involvement. Thus, the experiences of a sage and other beings are 
diametrically opposed to each other. Two different worlds, as it were. One of an infinite, changeless, imperishable nature. The other of a finite, changing and perishable nature. Thank you. So that's the difference between a normal person and a person who's self-realized. Any questions? It's quite, uh, these next, these few verses are very, very deep. So don't worry too much about it because as we go along, we'll understand them better. Yeah. Whatever you get, it's good. Okay, verse 17. Tatvat kamayam pravishanti sarve sasanti mapnoti nakamakami apuryamana machalapatishtatam samudrama pa pravishanti yadvat tatvat kamayam pravishanti sarve as the waters enter the ocean, which, filled from all sides, remains undisturbed. Likewise, he in whom all objects of enjoyment enter attains peace, not the desirer of objects. Another cryptic verse. It's such a deep verse, this. But we definitely need someone to explain it. So this verse is linked to verse 55, where it sort of continues from verse 55, um, where a self-realized person is described. I'll quickly read verse 55. The blessed Lord said, when one completely casts off Obartha, all desires of the mind and is satisfied in the self by the self then is one said to be of steady wisdom which means a person who's got rid of all his desires and is happy in the self this person is in steady wisdom meaning a self-realized person and here it continues and it gives a metaphor and this particular verse is taken from the Mundaka Upanishad, directly from the Mundaka Upanishad. You see the kind of verses they have in Upanishads. All of them are like that. That's why it's so deep and hard to understand Upanishad, because all the verses are like this, cryptic. So it's, this is a metaphor taken from the Mundaka Upanishad. It's saying, water from all different rivers flow into the ocean. Yeah, all rivers flow into the ocean. Each river has its own characteristics, correct? Each river has its own nature. For example, if I show you a picture of the river Nile, most of you will tell me, oh, it looks like the Nile. The way it flows the, on, the, on the borders, what there is, sand, etc. You might say, yes, that looks like the Nile. Similarly, if I show you a picture of the river Ganges, 
you'd probably recognize it and say, you know, it looks like Indian River, maybe the Ganges. You'd recognize it. River Thames, everyone would recognize the River Thames, isn't it? Yeah. So each of these rivers have a different character. But once the, the water from these rivers reached the ocean, can you tell which river, which water came from which river once it's in the ocean? You cannot, can you? The water from the Ganges, water from the Thames, water from the Nile, when they reach the ocean, you cannot tell that this water came from there. It all becomes part of that one ocean. You can say the river has lost its individuality and it's become part of the totality of the ocean. We can say that, isn't it? That statement would be true. The river has lost its individuality. It's no longer the Nile. It's no longer the Thames. It's become part of the ocean. And the ocean, no matter how much water goes into the ocean, is the ocean affected? It looks the same. Makes no difference to the ocean how much water flows in there. Now, what this means, what it's trying to say is that similarly, all worldly enjoyments cannot increase the happiness of a self-realized person. The self-realized person is like the ocean. No worldly enjoyments can increase the happiness of a self-realized person. They revel in peace and bliss. This peace and bliss and happiness is unknown to a normal human being. It's at a different level. Think of an incident, an experience that you've had where you've been the most happiest. Multiply that by thousands of times and you still won't get there. That's the amount of peace and happiness a self-realized person gets. Can we even imagine that much peace and happiness? We can't. So therefore, he has reached that state of constant peace and happiness. What worldly experience is going to add to that? Nothing. You say to him, come, I'll take you somewhere to see the Taj Mahal. You say, no big deal. It's not going to bring me any enjoyment. So a self-realized person no longer seeks worldly happiness. They understand the finite nature of worldly happiness. Compared to the infinite nature of happiness that he's already has as a self-realized person, there's no comparison. Does, that, does, does everyone understand what we're saying here? No worldly happiness can compare to the happiness that a self-realized person, or when you reach self-realization, you will get. All worldly enjoyments is like water of the river are to the ocean. What difference it makes to the ocean, what water is flowing from which river, how much is flowing, it makes no difference to the ocean. Similarly, to a self-realized person, it does make no difference, any worldly enjoyment, any object or being. 
cannot increase that pleasure. Now, we can't even understand that. We don't have no idea of that state. What do we do? We continue in the world, searching for infinite happiness. Will we ever find infinite happiness in the world? You think, what experience can you think of that will give you infinite happiness while acting in the world? Shilavan, any experience you can think of that will give you infinite happiness? What is infinite happiness, first of all? Any idea? What is infinite happiness? Infinite happiness is when you're not disturbed at all. Doesn't matter what happens around you, surround you. Okay. You stay the same. Okay. And yeah. Good. You, I, I think you don't. Uh, it's you don't get affected and you don't react. Yeah. Very good. Very good attempt, Shilavan. Anybody else? What is infinite happiness? Who's the mathematicians here? Any mathematicians? Vigil's not there today. Yeah, well. What is infinite? Ask her. Is it when your happiness knows no bounds? So happiness knows no bounds. You cannot actually describe the word infinite. You cannot describe infinite in any form. It's beyond our understanding. So how can we discuss? See, she loved and had a go. But how far away she was, even though she tried to describe it. We cannot explain infinite. Can you understand infinite happiness? No way. We can't understand infinite happiness. It's beyond understanding. That's how much peace and happiness you gain when you reach that state of self-realization. That's what it's saying. It's quite difficult though, right? Because you don't have a taste of it or anything like that to, to understand what, what you're actually missing out. Um, because if you think about it, most of the time you have a taste of something um, and that sort of leads you to have that sort of like pursue that. But with this, you can't have that initial uh, lure, I guess. Um, you're absolutely right. We cannot experience, we cannot understand or experience it until we get there. But while you're walking on the path with this knowledge, you get some peace, you get some calm, you get some happiness, you get some situations where, where before you're agitating, you're no longer agitated. Why? Because this understanding, this knowledge. Now imagine just by, we've only covered one chapter, yeah, or two chapters, and you're getting this much effect. Can you imagine when you get to that level? You can't imagine it. This is the point we're trying to make. It's beyond our understanding. So a worldly person does not understand this. He has no knowledge of this state, as Kevil just said. We have no understanding. We cannot understand it. We've not experienced it. And because of not understanding this, we continue in the world searching for this happiness. 
if I go here, maybe I'll find find good happiness. I'll find it. Maybe if I'll have a, a, another child, I'll have I'll find the happiness. Maybe I'll win the lottery, I'll find the happiness. You ask any of the people who've done that, they haven't found it. You'll never find it. Because all worldly happiness is finite, meaning it's limited. It has a shelf life. You have a child. Wow, my, I've got a beautiful baby. Yeah, when that child is 25, is it, you still say the same thing? When you're leaving the house, buy your own place, get married, come on. We brought you up to this age now. It's your it's tonight time you moved. Yeah? It's limited. That happiness you felt when the baby was born and when they're 25 is limited. It's changed. All happiness in the world has a shelf life. That's what you need to understand. You still love the child, but not the same as when it was a toddler, a baby. That's why we are never fully happy even after fulfilling our biggest desire, we still find that we're not happy afterwards. We're all in the world looking for happiness. It's all limited. Any object, even a, you get married to the most handsomest person in the world, most beautiful woman in the world, Miss World, limited. Doesn't last forever. The beauty will be gone. Good looks will be gone. One six pack will become one pack. It's only a matter of time. But so what we what he's saying is that we're searching for this happiness in the world. We will never find it. But eventually, after many many lifetimes you'll come across this knowledge, this idea of self-realization, which you've all come across. When you walk on this path to get to that state and you reach that state, you're completely fulfilled. You're happy, you gain that infinite happiness. And once you reach that state, what this verse is saying, you have no need for any worldly objects or beings thereafter. That's why these great sages, when they reach that state, they go and live in a cave. They don't need anyone. And you ask them, what would you, is there anything I can get you? They said, no, I'm okay. And what has he got? Nothing. I'm happy. Thank you. They don't need anything. When you reach that state, you don't need any worldly objects or beings. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. So what do we experience now? And you say that we are happy or, you know, or we are somebody, a question is, oh, are we happy? So the, that happiness is just an experience. It's Limited not experience. happy, happy, right? So everything we're doing is just an experience. And then, then you roll over to another experience. Yeah, because the happiness is no longer uh, giving us the happiness. So now we're looking for something else. So we're searching constantly throughout our life. Even if the person's on their deathbed, they're 80, 90 years old, and you ask them, and they say, oh, I wish I'd done this, or I wish I'd gone there, Haridwar, Rishikesh, 
whatever, I didn't get a chance, I was so involved. Still, they're looking, they don't realize it's not in the world. It says here, upon reaching the self, he revels in that supreme peace and bliss. Thereafter, he has no need to seek any other pleasures and joys. Worldly enjoyments do not provide him any further happiness. All worldly enjoyments are to him as waters of rivers are to the ocean. Bottom line is, what we are looking for is not in the world, it's beyond the world. Understand that. It's beyond the world. What you're looking for is beyond the world. You won't find it in this world. And you have to accept that statement for now. And if anybody disagrees, please tell me, because I may have missed out on something as well. Question? Still has a question. It's not a question. I suppose it's just a, uh, an observation. So if we're thinking about thinking of ourselves with the metaphor, mm -hmm. yeah, we are the rivers, individual characteristics, and I suppose our aim is to go towards the ocean. So a river doesn't know the ocean whilst it's a river yeah. because it can't comprehend something that it's not. Absolutely. Right. So likewise, if we are rivers and we're striving towards that ocean, we may be a trickle, but, you know, we're heading towards Absolutely. it. I suppose so really have the faith to continue and don't worry about reaching that ocean. Mm -hmm. Just understand that you're in this, you're, you are that trickle and you are going to succeed when you don't know, but there is an ocean there to reach. Absolutely, absolutely. Well said. So, yeah, we're all the rivers. Hey, I'm the Thames. Hey, I'm the Ganges, I'm the Nile. And ultimately we, we will get to the ocean and we, all rivers will go to the ocean and we're all going towards that state, which lifetime we don't know. But ultimately that's our goal. How fast you go is up to you. How much effort you put in. Any other questions? So this is from the Munda Kopanishad. We can do a whole class just on this one verse. That's how deep these verses are in the Upanishads. Hema. Verse 55, describe a self-realized sage. This verse completes the description with a beautiful smile taken from the Mandu Mandaka Upanishad. Mandaka Upanishad. It compares the sage to the ocean into which all rivers flow. Enormous quantities of water pour into the ocean, but the ocean remains unaffected. Though both comprise water, river, comprise water, rivers have a form of separateness. While the ocean knows no boundaries, each river has a distinct nature of its own, its own individuality. But when it reaches the ocean, its individuality merges into the totality. It becomes one with the ocean. Similarly, each human being rushes to the world, 
seeking infinite happiness. However, worldly happiness is of a finite nature. So he continues to seek until he reaches the infinite happiness of self-realization. Upon reaching the self, he reveals in that supreme peace and bliss. Thereafter, he has no need to seek any other pleasures and joys. Worldly enjoyments do not provide him any further happiness as he, he, as he has attained the state of infinitude. All worldly enjoyments are to him as waters of rivers are to the ocean. As a contrast to the man of perfection, the desirer of worldly objects has no peace or happiness. The unfulfilled desires within produce metal agitations, suffering and sorrow to him. Thank you. So that's the opposite. A man who hasn't reached that state, he has no peace or happiness. It's limited. This is what I'm saying. The peace and happiness we experience is limited. It can change just like that. The unfulfilled desires produce mental agitation, suffering and sorrow to him. We go through that cycle. We're happy, we're unhappy, we're sorrow. We, we just go through that cycle. We're not always happy all the time. Look at the weather, raining, miserable. Weather's miserable, you're miserable. You know, this is how it is. Self-realized person is always happy. Okay, 71. Vihaya kamanya sarvan Pumam sarati nishprahaha Nirmamo nirahankaraha Sasanti mati gachati Vihaya kamanaya sarvan Pumam sarati nishprahaha Nirmamo nirahankaraha Sasanti madhigachati That man who abandons all desires and moves about without yearning, without the sense of I and mine, he attains peace. That man who abandons all desires and moves about without yearning, without the sense of I and mine, he attains peace. So this verse now concludes the person of self-realization. Concludes who is an enlightened soul. He is one who functions in the world without desires. We all know this now. He has no desires in the world. Even though his senses and mind makes contact with the world, he's still living in the world. While he's acting, his intellect is fixed on the self. Everything is Brahman. I am Brahman. This is the totality. While he's acting in the world. He functions purely on the guidance of the subtle intellect. Can someone explain what the, subtle, the difference subtle intellect and gross intellect? Anyone? A self-realized person only acts on his subtle intellect. He's guided by the subtle intellect. Unlike us who act on our gross intellect. What's the difference between the two? Any idea?
the gross and subtle intellect. We all have a gross and subtle intellect. Is the gross intellect engaging outwardly and subtle is engaging inwardly? So. Yeah, very good, Ravi. Well explained. Anybody else? Another way of putting it, as Ravi has rightly said, gross intellect thinks of the world. How can I gain this? How can I increase my business? How can I do this in the world? Everything to do in the world, you use your gross intellect. Subtle intellect thinks beyond the world. If you're asking the question, who is God? What is God? That's the subtle intellect. It's thinking something beyond the world. Right now, most of you joining the class, you're using your subtle intellect. Look, we're talking about Brahman, God. Only the subtle intellect can do that. Is that okay? Everyone knows the difference? So what it's saying is an enlightened person no longer has a yearning desire for worldly objects or beings. He's free within from acquisition and enjoyment. He has no need for it. You give him anything, he's not interested. See, you see these great sages in the world, you hear about them, what they're walking around with, just their ochre robes, a bottle for their water and a plate for whoever gives them food. That's it, that's all their possessions. I remember reading about Swami Tapavan. He used to go around from Rishikesh and above, he used to go wandering in the Himalayas. He used to go to um, Mount Kailash. People used to offer him money to say, here, for your trip. He used to refuse. And he has nothing. No, I, want, I don't want the money. So then sometimes they used to give him a ticket for the train journey. No need. God will look after me. This is how they function. Sometimes he didn't have food for two or three days. Doesn't matter. God will provide. That was the attitude. So a self-realized person has no desires for worldly objects or beings, free from acquisition and enjoyment, compared to an enlightened person, desire for everything, attached to everything, we're attached to everything. Give me more, not less. We have a possessive nature, my family, my kids, my house, my bank balance, my car, Everything we are attached to. Self-realized person is free from egoism and attachments when he contacts the world. There is no notion of I or mine. He lives, he lives his life like an act on stage. He's just playing a role until he reaches that. Once he passes away, he becomes one with the totality. While he's still living in the world, self-realized, he's just like an actor on stage, meaning just playing a role. So Krishna says, therefore, Arjuna, enlightened soul, an enlightened soul lives a life of peace, happiness. 
which we don't understand. Any questions? So we're explaining a realm which is unknown to us, by the way. But it's important for us to know this. Yeah, so. So whilst you said the gross intellect functions in the world, mm. and it's the subtle intellect that helps mm. us to think of the self, mm. and I suppose go away from the world, would developing a gross intellect help us to develop our subtle intellect? Good question. Anybody know the answer? Would developing the gross intellect help develop the subtle intellect? Remember, gross intellect in the world, subtle intellect beyond the world. Everyone's nodding their heads. If you, if you, so the gross intellect would help you to understand, right, that I need to become more unselfish, I need to be, uh, I need to reduce my desires, I need to um, continue to study and develop the gross intellect so I know from, you know, right from wrong, and so that is still the gross intellect. So would that not help with the... Yeah. See you. The second time you you changed the goalpost. No. First time. No, no. First time you said would developing the gross intellect develop the subtle intellect, and everyone said no, which they're correct. Because what if you apply your gross intellect to business? Is that going to help your subtle intellect? What if you apply your gross intellect to becoming a doctor? Is that going to apply your subtle intellect? No. But in the second statement you said gross intellect applied gross intellect to this knowledge right see the second statement you said was with this knowledge so when you apply your gross intellect to this knowledge then that would develop a subtle intellect the subtle intellect is covered by your desires a person with a lot of desires no subtle intellect As you gain this knowledge and you reduce your desires, the subtle intellect surfaces. Because you're reducing your desires, which is covering the subtle intellect. Does that make sense? So everyone has got both. But the subtle intellect is covered by desires, worldly desires. As I mentioned to you, I, met, I came out of the ashram and I've told this to you before, true incident. I was at a group, I went to a wedding, and people asking, oh, I haven't seen you for a long time. I said, I was in ashram studying Bhagavad Gita. This one gentleman I know very well, highly gross, business-minded, money-orientated, and said, oh, I haven't seen you for a long time. Where have you been? I said, I was studying in the ashram. He goes, what were you studying? Bhagavad Gita, straight away, he walked away from me. Didn't want to have any more conversation with me. No subtle intellect. Say so different degrees, depending on how much gross desires you have. So when you apply your gross intellect, and you have to, on this knowledge, and then you apply this knowledge to your life, reducing your desires, naturally the subtle intellect will surface. Is that clear to everyone? Something we covered in the earlier Vedanta treaties, I think it was. Yeah. We covered that. Yeah. The example okay, any questions? Was then 
No, the example there was about the pond and the algae. Mm -hmm. You can't see at the bottom because the algae is right. red, which is our desires. So once you start removing, you start seeing the light coming through. That's right. Exactly. Thank you, Josh Nobin. That was the example. Pond with algae. You cannot see the clarity of the water. You can't see beyond the algae. So as you start removing the algae, you can start seeing the water clearly. Similarly, as you start reducing your desires, the subtle intellect surfaces, you can see more and more of this. What's beyond this world? You have a better understanding. You can see beyond this world. Thank you, Joshua. Any other questions on gross and subtle intellect? Okay, so we all have it, yeah? So, um, Neelam was supposed to read 71, but unfortunately she couldn't make it today, so it's taken her place. The verse gives a complete picture of an enlightened sage. Arjuna poses four questions in verse 54. He asks Krishna to describe the self-realized person, how the infinite expressed through the finite form, what was his inner nature, and how he met the external world. Krishna answered these four questions in the preceding verses. Herein, he beautifully summarizes all the answers in one verse. The last line of this verse states that the stage that the sage attains real peace. Verse 64 explains how to attain peace through the process of self-control. Verse 65 explains the effect of peace, how mental peace promotes intellectual sharpness and thereby efficiency, productivity, and prosperity in the world. Verse 70 graphically describes that supreme state of peace and bliss using the metaphor of rivers entering the ocean. The self-realized person moves about in the world, free from all desires. Desires do not drive him from experience to experience in the world. His senses and mind make contact with the world, but his intellect remains ever fixed on the Supreme Self. He functions solely under the governance of his subtle intellect. With this guidance, the sense objects cannot disturb him. Verse 58 describes this state by comparing it to a tortoise. The enlightened one has no yearning for anything. His inner nature knows no wanting or craving. Within himself, he remains free from longing for any acquisition or enjoyment that this world can offer. Equality of perfection described in verse 56. Lastly, the man of perfection acts in the world without the notion of I and mine. He contacts the world free from egoism and attachment. Verse 57 deals with this quality of a perfected soul and his consequent joy of living. In contrast, the average person develops a selfish and possessive relationship with objects and beings and suffers the sorrow thereof. The enlightened one maintains peace 
in his life by remaining totally free from ego and egocentric desires of the world. This state may be compared to an actor on a stage. An actor retains his true identity while he acts on the stage. He cannot afford to forget his personality while he plays his different roles. With the constant awareness of himself, he has absolutely no yearning for anything on the stage, nor does he develop an ego with respect to the happenings there. He plays his role to the best of his ability without any ego or egocentric desires. Such is the life of a perfected being. He treats the whole wide world as one big stage and plays his part with neither ego nor yearning for anything that the world can offer. Thank you. So, any questions? That sort of summarizes what a self-realized person is and how he behaves in the world while he's still living in the world. So that's what we need to strive for, by the way. Yeah, Deepavin, it's all laid out there, yeah? Just have to follow it now. Good. Any questions? Okay, last verse. Esabrami <speaking in foreign language> This is the state of Brahman, O Bharata. Attaining this, none is deluded. Being established therein, even at the end of life, one attains oneness with Brahman. So, you remember, Arjuna woke up and in verse 54, he asked the question, what is a self-realized person like, Krishna? You're talking about the self-realized person. What's he like? And what has Krishna been doing for the last 17 verses? He's been explaining to Arjuna the state of self-realization. And he now concludes his explanation in his last verse. He says, Krishna says, Arjuna, Arjuna, a person becomes Brahman, God, Atman, by exhausting all of their desires. This I'm repeating now. You all know this now. I don't have to tell you. Thereafter, you reach the fourth state, the fourth state of pure, unconditioned consciousness. This state lies beyond the three conditioned consciousness states of waking, dream, and deep sleep. So what is saying? The fourth state is beyond the waking, dream, and deep sleep. We've covered this before. Throughout our lives, we go through the three states of consciousness. All of us. Right now, we're in the waking world. As a waker, 
Tonight we go to sleep, dream world, deep sleep state thereafter. These three states are conditioned consciousness. It is not your true personality. Anything conditioned is not his true personality. Remember we gave an example, Coca-Cola. Is water conditioned by Coke syrup? It's not pure water. So we are all conditioned consciousness. The fourth state is the unconditioned consciousness. See, right now in the waking world, you are this person. You call yourself Deepa, Arunaben, Vanita, Ravi, Kewo. These are your conditioned state, waking world state. You give your person, you give yourself this name, this personality. Right now, you are this person. Tonight, you go to sleep, you enter the dream state. You take on the role of some other person in the dream world. You're no longer Nipa Ben or Aruna Ben. You're, you could be anything. You don't know who you can be. Completely different personality from this waking world right now. Then you enter the deep sleep state. You're nothing. Dreamless sleep. These are all conditioned states of consciousness. The consciousness plus the waking world. Consciousness plus dream world. The fourth state is the transcendental state, your real state, your real personality. You are not this person that you think you are. You are Brahman. You are God. This is what he's saying. Any questions on that before I continue? Does everyone understand that? Yeah? You're all conditioned consciousness right now. And in the three conditioned states of waker, dreamer, deep sleep states, we are all in ignorance. We're all in delusion. We don't know anything. Right now, what is Krishna saying? You don't know anything. You're all delusional. Krishna is saying, not me, yeah? You're all delusional. What does he mean by this? Any idea? If I said to you, you're delusional, you might swear at me. But what does he mean? Anybody want to say what he means? We don't know who we really are. We don't know where we came from. We don't know where we're going. We don't know if the waking world is real or the dream world is real. You ask the dreamer tonight in the dream. Do you think that person will think this is real? This world is real, that dream world. We don't know our purpose in life. What do we know then? We don't know anything. We're in ignorance. We're in delusion. This is what Krishna means. We don't know anything. So what are we doing? 
All we're doing is we're going through this cycle of birth and death. We are born, we talk, we walk, we go to college, get a job, we get married, we have kids, we get old, we die. Then same again, we're born, we talk, we walk, college, job, marriage, death. This cycle we're going through, that's all we're doing. We're just caught up in this samsara, this worldly entanglement. We don't know anything else. Saying, once we, oh, we realize the self, we reach the fourth state, we overcome this ignorance. We overcome this delusion. We gain true knowledge. We gain true wisdom. Thereafter, we understand everything there is to understand. Well, the knowledge is complete. And it's also saying we remain in the state of unconditioned consciousness, even after death. Even when we die, we still stay in that state. Death does not affect the eternal experience of Brahman. Anyone know why? Why does not death affect the experience of Brahman? You reach self-realization. What is death? Yeah, Damesh? Just a different state of mind. Different state of mind. Okay, anybody else? What is death? Kill? So the Atman will continue, right? It's for everlasting. It's just the body's discarded. So your Atman will still experience that peace and happiness. So what is death? Death of the body. That's it. The body's died. The physical body's died. But your mind, intellect, as Kevin said, your experience continues. It's not the death of your personality, just your physical body. So you may ask yourself, all right, I'm studying this subject. I'm learning this knowledge. How do I know it's real? This concept of self-realization, I'm hearing about this. How do I know it's real? Could it all be just a you know, big hoax? How do I know? And you're, you'd be right to ask that question, by the way. Any ideas? First of all, we can't understand it anyway. From this limited condition state, it's difficult for us to understand. Or even decipher, differentiate between the states. So this concept, concept of jivan mukti, meaning liberation from this life, moksha, self-realization, the fact that it can be achieved in this lifetime and that you can experience it during this lifetime, If you don't accept this, then all these teachings, these theories, are all just theories. Someone's giving out this subject saying, you do this, this will happen, that will happen, this will happen. It's a theory, correct? You all understand, yeah? 
And we can say that is not a theory. How? If you read the Upanishads, and the Upanishads only talks about the state of Brahman, the state of self-realization. All the different Upanishads are written by people at different times, hundreds or thousands of years apart. Mundaka Upanishad, Kevalya Upanishad, many different Upanishads. They all describe the same experience by worldly people, people like me and you living in this world. They all describe the same experience of liberation from their conditioned state while they're in the waking world. Their state of the experience of self-realization to reach that fourth state. And then they've stated it. And none of these people have put a name to it. They haven't put their name to it. We don't know who's written it. Different times. And they're all saying the same thing in different ways from their own experience. All of them are describing the same experience in different ways. So it has to be true. Otherwise, how is it possible they can explain their experience? The same experience. And they don't use the same words. Different metaphors based on different times that it was given out. So therefore, if you take that, what they've written in the Upanishads, then this state of self-realization must be achievable in our lifetime. As a human being living in this waking world, it must be achievable. Otherwise, all these guys are wrong. And they have no need to state this. They haven't even put their name to it. What have they got to gain? Nothing. And it's not one person. 200 and something different Upanishads. So it's different experience about so many people. So you have to have that faith that what this is, what Krishna is saying is achievable in this lifetime. And the Upanishad backs it up. Any questions? Arunabin. The state of Brahman mentioned here refers to the enlightened stage of a sage, exhaustively described in the previous 17 verses. Brahman is another word for Atman or God. By exhausting all your desires, you become God. You reach the state of pure, unconditioned consciousness called Turiya, fourth. Fourth refers to the transcendental state beyond the waking, dreaming, and deep sleep state of consciousness. In these other three states, you assume the personalities of the waker, the dreamer, and the deep sleeper. They are conditioned states, not your real state. Your real state is the unconditioned consciousness. In the three conditioned states of waker, dreamer, and deep sleeper, you remain in delusion, you are shrouded in ignorance. You are confused and confounded as to your true identity. You do not know who you are. 
from where you have come, where you are going, or the purpose of your existence in this world. Upon realizing yourself, you regain supreme wisdom. Your delusion disappears instantly. You rise above your condition. Being established in this state of unconditioned consciousness, you remain so even after death. Death of the body does not affect the everlasting experience of Brahman. The above declaration conforms to the concept of Jivan Mukti, which holds the view that the self can be realized in one's lifetime. Without acceptance of this concept, the entire Vedic literature would be mere theories of unrealized teachers rather than inspired declarations arising from the intimate subjective experiences of realized selves. There you go. Thank you, Arunabhin. Only a person who's become self-realized can exp explain that experience. Nobody else, otherwise just a theory. And when you read the Upanishads, you, ca you cannot but have faith and belief that this person has reached there. Because what he's talking about, we don't even understand, because we only understand the world. And it's beyond the world he's talking about. How can anyone talk about something beyond the world unless he's been there or experienced it? And they're all saying the same thing. So everyone must have had the similar experience. Any questions? Thank you, Harunabin. Yeah, Harunabin. Did you say the Upanishads were written thousands of years apart? Yeah, hundreds, thousands. And they are 200 plus Upanishads. They're like scriptures, aren't they? Yes. Everyone, all the Upanishads are the same, meaning they're only talking about the state of Brahman. Some are so complicated, we can't even understand it. Some are a bit more simpler to understand. In the ashram, we cover four Upanishads. There's a book, whoever's got the complete works, the Upanishads are in there. Um, we cover four of them. And Swamiji believes those four is enough to cover all of them because they're all talking about the same thing. So these were these four we take we take up four basically, which are more easy to understand. Yeah. Very deep, very deep. One verse, one class, sometimes. Any questions? So this is the end of chapter two. So we read the last. Om Tat Saditi Srimad Bhagavad Gita Supani Satsu Brahma Vidyayam Yoga Sastre Sri Krishna Juna Samvade Sankhya Yoga Nama Vidyo Dhyayayaha Om that is real, thus in the Upanishads of the glorious Bhagavad Gita, the science of the eternal, the scripture of yoga, the dialogue between Sri Krishna and Arjuna ends the second chapter entitled The Yoga of Knowledge. Now, before we conclude any chapter, we always read the first verse again of that chapter. 
And this is to signify that we have not finished learning yet. We ain't got there yet. We're only beginning. So we, we will be continuing. So we read the verse first, first verse of chapter two again. Sanjaya uvacha tam tatha kripaya vishtam asrupuna kulekshanam vishidantamidam vahyam uvacha madhusudanaha. That's it. Chapter two is finished. We will start chapter three. The yoga of action. The path of action. Introducing the path of action. 43 verses. Not as deep. It will be a bit more simpler, this chapter. Great. So we'll start that next Sunday. Any questions before we finish? Yeah, I have a question. Yeah. You know, Verse 70, mm -hmm. how do you know to, to change the tune of the verses? I have no idea. <laughs> There's no marking to say that. It's from practicing in the ashram that I know. There's a few different um, tones in the Gita. And I just, I apply one, it doesn't work. I apply the second, it doesn't work. I apply the third, it works. Then I know that's the one. So it comes from practice rather than there's no way to know otherwise. Yeah. Okay. So good question. And I asked the same question and I got the same answer, by the way. So um, any other questions before we finish? So chapter two is basically leading us to all the other chapters now. It's like we are going to dissect chapter two slowly from now yes. on. Absolutely. Absolutely perfectly put. Yes, Shilabin, that's right. We're going to now dissect chapter two so we understand it properly, slowly, in smaller dosage. Yeah. Krishna has bombarded Arjuna with chapter two. So that Arjuna th thinks, hang on, Krishna, how do, how do you know all this stuff? Where did you get this information from? This is deep stuff. Krishna, I didn't know you know all this. He pays attention. Okay, Krishna, guide me. You guide me. You seem to have the knowledge. You seem to have the wisdom. What shall I do? How am I going to fight this battle? Because right now I'm dejected. I'm on the floor. I don't know what to do. You've had this wisdom. Please help me so I can fight this battle. Guide me. So now from chapter three, Krishna spoon feeds Arjuna the knowledge so that by the time the end we finish the Gita, he's ready to fight. Come on. Whoever comes in my way, I don't care. I'm not attached to no one. I'm just going to fight this war and finish everyone off. That's it. That's where Krishna gets Arjuna. And in the same way, we'll get all of us to say, that's it. This is my focus. This is my goal in life. Forget everything. I just want to reach that goal, that state. Get out of my delusion. Yeah. Okay. So enjoy the rest of the day and I'll see you next week.